Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Andy Shaw. He's the CEO of MSM Healthcare, and he has a consultancy business. He's a part-time comedian, and uh, he's very focused on uh, creativity. So today, what we're going to be exploring is uh, the life and loves of a CEO, what it's really like to be one, and the things that really piss him off about dealing with salespeople. So, Andy, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, sure. So, as you mentioned, I'm currently CEO of MSM Healthcare, which is a staffing and uh, recruitment business. I kind of landed into that role by default, really. It was um, part of the consultancy business, which I, I, ran, I run, and I ended up with, with two roles from the back of that, which makes my time, splits my time and, and makes things, things more challenging. I'm also building a personal brand and writing a book at the same time. So I've got plenty of things going on. So it's good to have a, a platform to, to talk about salespeople that waste, <laughs> waste people's time and, uh, and don't get the results that they want. So as an ex-salesperson myself, I've, I've been a prime seller and, uh, and also I've sold sales training myself. So it's, uh, I've got a fairly good understanding of this subject from, from all sides of, uh, of the fence. So I'm happy to be here and talk about it. I hope we can bring some value to the listeners. Excellent. Okay, well, let's start with the role of a CEO. What is it? What are you tasked to do? It's very different to, to what I actually imagined it to be because I've grown up through various different corporate businesses and my own businesses as well. And really, you end up being a bit of a jobs worth as a CEO, especially in a, if you're not in a massive organization and everything that isn't allocated to your staff members becomes your responsibility. Everything that is allocated to your staff members also is your responsibility. So you have to have a very attuned mind to, to switch tasks very quickly. Your time is very important. Organization for me has been been key. So I might I might go from looking at a legal contract from a customer or from a supplier through to a sales query or through to an HR issue and everything in between. And then behind that, I'm putting things into spreadsheets so that we can present to, to the board the next day. So it's jack of all trades, master of all trades as well, which is which is always always difficult to assimilate. And really, it's not as exciting as it sounds. There's a lot of there's a lot of time doing stuff that is kind of mundane. But it ultimately, all of those things need doing to drive the business forward. So, it's a functionless role in a lot of ways. That's interesting. So, talk to me about your responsibilities. Yes. So, on a macro level, I'm responsible for leading the board. So speaking about things which are our corporate responsibilities, our legal responsibilities as a business and as and as directors, through to leading our function heads. So driving sales, managing the HR side, looking overseeing the accountancy and the and the financial side. We have an accountant and a finance person, but putting that into context for the business is really important. Then you go into into kind of being the face of the business and, and being 
responsible for disputes or client relationship management or even down to kind of invoice queries and things like that where there are people further down my food chain that get something which is unique or they've not dealt with before and then that then that gets escalated up so it's everything from dealing with hmrc to dealing with a timesheet and that's <laughs> everything that's in between and that so how do you manage and prevent upward delegation because one of the things i've heard frequently is that people bring the monkey and then dump it on your desk and how do you make sure that it goes it leaves with them and doesn't stay on your back that's a good question and a, vi- and a vital thing for for all kind of senior managers or anybody in a board level position that's got enough people under them to cause them trouble in their day i think there's a couple of things one is to have the discipline to say no to push back and say that's your responsibility bring me it's a bit trite but bring me a solution not a problem then there is the 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 softer side of that which is allowing people the bandwidth to make mistakes so i had a i had a rule when i first became ceo it was if i think other people sh- should have that responsibility give them the responsibility and don't be upset if they make a mistake be upset if they don't learn from the mistake and then as a ceo you your your job really is a risk manager so you deciding whether the task that you're delegating is something that is has got a big enough risk impact for you to get involved or not and and what you find is that if you empower people give them the freedom to make their own decisions and make their own mistakes as long as they're honest about it and, and tell you what's needed over time they they then become more comfortable just doing and, and bringing answers or results rather than the needing to 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 discuss problems so by taking a strong stance allowing some mistakes and allowing some some small losses on the back of that actually clears everybody's time and, and focuses focus people to make decisions on their own then you know as that progresses when they do come to you you know that it's that it's that it requires your attention so there's a kind of semi-closed door policy i don't i, I don't buy into that fully open door policy that a lot of CEOs talk about. I think it's bullshit. I don't think it really works in in practicality. It just sounds nice and, and sounds like they're, they're trying to attract people to come work for them. But the reality is a bit of hard love, but also a safety net under there because ultimately I'm responsible for everything that goes on in the business. I think what I'm hearing is that you let people fail, but you don't let the business fail. Each failure is a teachable moment. So what they get punished for isn't for failing, it's for repeating the mistake or hiding it. I mean, there's absolutely no place for, for, for hiding your mistakes if you work in a team environment. We all make them. I own mine. I'm quite transparent about mistakes that I make with my team. And I think humility is an important character trait at every level in a business. And it's actually an equalizer. So you might, you know, I might be the CEO and there might be an ops clerk or, or a part-time you know, part-time finance person, but both of those roles are absolutely vital to the business and the business couldn't operate without them. And therefore there's there's an equality of on that. Yeah, sure, my my job might be perceived as more important, but I think you you give people the respect that they, they deserve, set the boundaries and set the, you know, set the expectations and then expect people to live up to that. And then it's if they don't meet their own expectations and my expectations, there's the conversations. But give them the responsibility. 
it's about failing small and, and learning because that's that's really how we learn. In a smaller organization, it's vital, I think, for people to grow within their roles. So they need to have a growth mindset. So hiring well also saves you, uh, saves you some heartache further down the line. So people need to want to have a little bit more responsibility and show the capability to be given that. You've touched on a topic that's very close to my heart. I fundamentally believe that anyone in a management or leadership role, their number one role and responsibility is to hire well and to build the bench. If you hire the right people, 95% of your management problems go out the window. It also allows you the time to recover time. Michael Brady Waite's study on uh, leaders who don't know how to say no suggests that they lose 31 hours a month because of that one handicap. Now, if you can't say no and you don't know how to delegate well, then chances are you'll suffer from upward delegation, you'll end up being run ragged and burnt out, and you spend most of your day doing someone else's work that you're already paying them for, and you disempower them, which means that you create flight risks. And the single biggest reason why people leave is that they don't feel like they're valued and they don't feel like they can do their best work. So you've touched on a number of really important points there. If we look at the objective of the board, what what, what are objectives of the board? Obviously, there's a strategy that you should have, and I say that with a wry smile, and the board's role is to execute that strategy. How do you make sure that all the different elements of the business are working in alignment and working towards that common purpose? Because one of the biggest obstacles I see in many organizations is that you end up with stovepipes and politics and fiefdoms and then people doing quite a good job on their own, but in opposition to one another. Yeah, it's a good question. I've spent my, by choice, I've spent my my career in, in smaller businesses, partly because I had some early glimpses of the politics you talk about and <laughs> found it unfathomable as a sports person that people would pull in, pull in a different direction on the same team. Now, as you become a bit more wise, then you realise that everyone's got their own political agenda within things. I think the how to have a, a board which is focused in the same direction and everybody working towards the same goal is to identify the goal. So that's the first step. Then it's to make that goal congruent with what you do day to day. So does the goal match what the business is there to, to do and how, and how it's done day to day? And then do the people fit into that? If you inherit a board, which is kind of what I did, then you have to, you have to retrofit that or you have to move the pieces around. Now, not everybody fits in every board and, and that, or everybody fits in every organisation, but it's in, the people are the most important thing. And you can align, even if you've got somebody who sits on the board who is all about compliance, like the chairman, all the chairman really cares about is that we deliver our financials, we're not putting the business at risk, there's no, liti- no potential for litigation. And then you've got the sales director who just wants to make sales and he cares about the top line, and you've got the accountant who cares about the bottom line. Really, the fundamental is what's the purpose of all of those functions. So to see what what is that, what's the 
what's the raison d'etre for the business? So a lot of businesses simply exist to make money. And I think if that's the case, you have got trouble in your boardroom because your compliance person is never going to be aligned with just making money. So yeah, making money is important. I'm a, I'm a capitalist and I think creating wealth is the prime purpose for business. Um, and, and it should be finding that alignment with making sure that everybody's on, everybody's on board with how that should be done, whether that's ethically or responsibly or whatever your mantras are within your business, whatever that's there for. And having a very clear understanding of that and make asking people to really review, do they fit into that environment? Is that that do they buy into that? Because it's the minute that the personality doesn't fit with the purpose that you have a you have some you have some problems, and then people feather in their own agendas. And, and there's lots of lots of sidelines that you can go down with that. But I think if you align the purpose of the person with the purpose of the business, then you've got you've got a chance of of having a coherent boardroom. So it strikes me that the most obvious place to establish that alignment is in the recruitment process and making sure that your values and the new hire's values are aligned and being clear about what the purpose of the business is. And I'm paraphrasing, I think, uh, Henry Ford's quote, which is the business that's uh, set up only to make money is a bad business. I think there are two other higher priorities and the money is the byproduct. It must serve your target market, your customers, and it must serve your people. And if you do both of those well, then money is the byproduct and you create wealth as a result. But it starts in the recruitment process. So uh, I'm curious to learn what you do to ensure that in the recruitment process, you are only selecting people who fit with the value system. Doesn't mean they necessarily are all identical and homogenous, but they are a good cultural fit or at least a good values fit. So I think diversity of opinion and range of background also adds enormous value. There's a couple of things to say on recruitment. I think, first of all, it's difficult. So, (laughs) I mean, part of my early career was spent being a recruitment consultant, so I know how difficult it is to, to attract Longevity in all roles always comes around by hiring through attitude, not necessarily aptitude. Now, you need some aptitude for every role, but the attitude's got to be right. And as you learn more and as you see more, get more experience, you realize that different attitudes doesn't mean that they don't fit together. So it's about understanding what attitudes and what uh, and what perp- what behaviors people exhibit what works and what doesn't work so i think when you when you put in a board together it's very important to try and find people that are not like you if you end up with a homogenized board you you probably end up with a very myopic focus of of the organization and that brings problems further down the line i think you get faster growth, you get more purpose, and you 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 can be people-centric, whether that's your people or whether that's your customers or, or people that you serve in your, in your broader markets, by having contrarian thinkers on your board. So one interview technique that I would use at, at a very high level would be to have to, to do two things. One is to get somebody to talk about something which is quite 
potentially confrontational is something which they're not comfortable talking about, usually politics or <laughs> politics or religion. Or religion and sex. Brexit or something like that, where, where, where it's okay. The test to pass is can you hold, in a boardroom, I believe you've got to be able to hold two conflicting opinions and have them both be the truth. So I think that's really important as a, that it's okay not to not to think the same as other people. And if people in if somebody's in a boardroom and they can't think like that, that they're not going to last very long because they're just going to get upset and argue with with people and and then go back into their shell or explode. So another good way that to explore that more deeply once you've had a conversation about something which is potentially controversial, and I'll take on a whichever position fits the opposite of that person just to just to see how it goes. And then I think it's re- a real depth barometer is to understand, can somebody straw man someone else's standpoint? So for those people that are not 100% familiar with that, straw manning is really taking somebody else's viewpoint and explaining it back to them. So Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson did a did a fantastic conference, if you want to call it that, where they put both of their arguments about religion and non-religion out. And at the start of each session, they'd strawmanned each other's opinions and, and and basically so Sam Harris would would state what he understood Jordan Peterson's opinion to be. And that's fascinating. So that really shows that that people can listen to understand. So that's a real that's a real skill in a boardroom is that can you listen to understand? People listen Oftentimes they're listening just to, to to put their own opinion back. So they're listening for the end of what someone's saying so they can speak. And then I think it's very much uh, about listening to understand, and that shows that that shows an ability to hold those 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 conflicting concepts. I, I really like that whole idea of and um, working conversation towards controversy to see how people handle that. And uh, I'll I'll be exploring that in my own recruitment. One of the really interesting things about that, it's actually a very good Buddhist uh, practice. Buddhist monks spend 10 minutes arguing for and against the existence of God. Then they swap and they do this for hours on end. And the ability to hold two conflicting views and be able to appreciate them for the truth that they hold for the individual is very key. I'm really interested to dig a bit deeper in terms of when, as a board or a CEO, you are considering an investment. Everyone that I've spoken to over the years has said that their objective is to create value. And they have to make trade-offs on the basis that they have limited resource, limited funds, limited time, and they want to make the best possible decision for both today and the future. And they're having to make these trade-offs. So when a salesperson comes to you, let's start with the bad, first of all. What does shit look like? So uh, I think if there's a number of different phases of, of the sales process, I think if I'm at a very early exploration stage of, of looking at taking an investment, so if I've gone to market, for example, and I'm not being cold called, and I engage a salesperson. So let's let's say I've expressed some level of interest. I think the my biggest bugbear with salespeople is that they still, despite 20 years of 
of research and papers and products being written about selling with value, they will default to pitching the pitching the product spec or what it does and, and not actually put that in context for your business. So as a CEO, I care about different things to somebody further down the buying chain in my organization. So I care about what's it going to do to my top line? How's it going to affect my bottom line? How can I fund it? Is it going to make a big enough difference to to offset the risk of the investment? And if 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 a salesperson doesn't find out what I'm interested in by asking questions at the beginning of the process, they've got a very very difficult job selling to me. And if I like the product enough, if I because I've already done the research or somebody in my organisation has done it and sent it to me. I'll know that I want that product, but then I'll push the salesperson to make sure that it fits my need. I'll kind of retrofit that. So I'll push back on that. And even then, not they don't all get that. It's got to be about value. So I need value out of every transaction. It's very rarely about price for the CEO. It's almost always about value. If it's multiples of 10 out, or if it's kind of different ballparks, then then price is important. But once you realize that you're in you're in a value-based conversation, you've got to the salesperson's got to understand your business. So if they don't have any, if they can't conceptually understand my business, then it's very difficult to share that value. So you've got to, as a seller, it's important that you are nimble enough to ask the right questions, gain the understanding, and have a commercial mindset. If you want to sell to CEOs, you've you've got to be thinking like a CEO. Okay. So You've touched on a number of issues there. One of the things that I've seen frustrate CXOs and particularly CEOs and CFOs is the lack of business acumen of salespeople. They are so fixated on selling the ugly kid and talking about the ugly baby that they don't understand the organic nature of a business and all the different moving parts. So when I'm working with my salespeople, I want them to start by understanding who they are selling to, what it's like to live their typical day, week, month, year, the pressure that they're under, the fires they're having to put out, the uh, demands on their time. What happens if those, that individual does a good job or makes a good decision versus if they do a bad job or makes a bad decision? Who else is affected? Now, what advice would you give to sales leaders when they are taking in new salespeople to make sure that their salespeople are equipped with that insight rather than feeding them two weeks of product knowledge and then saying, uh, congratulations, you are one, off you go? That's it's a very good question. And, and hiring effective salespeople is, is a very difficult thing because <laughs> anyone, especially if they're experienced, because They've learned how to bullshit, so that's uh, they'll try and bullshit the interviewer. So you've got to be more robust in your in your hiring, and you've got to really put put them under pressure. I think a nice test of commercial acumen for that I've used in hiring salespeople in the past is to have them back of a fag packet mark out their commercial impact on the business. So if we, so you say to them, if we hire you, talk to me about the commercial impact. How will that work? And you can see what level of business acumen they've got because they need to understand that they're not going to make a contribution for the first three months in, in all likelihood if they're an account seller and there's a runtime to get up and running. And therefore, their salary cost of 5000 6000 10000 a month is 
off the bottom line, and that then there is a then there is an, a desired ROI on the back of that, and that their contribution is not just the amount of sales quota that they're, they're hitting; it's what that does for the business, and and be able to draw some draw some graphs or explain that that, that verbally and understand that there is an investment required and they are an investment. And if they think of themselves as an investment and understand what the person is going through to invest in them, they'll never be able to sit in a position of a CEO and understand what is that CEO thinking about investment. Because every investment I make, it's like spending my own money. I don't own the entire company, but I but I do feel like I do feel like every single penny I spend is mine. So it's kind of you're very much more careful when you're spending your own when you're spending your own money than you are when you're spending someone else's. I think if a salesperson can understand that, then they've got a good chance of being able to align with the commercial side of it. You don't need to be a business analyst to be able to understand commercial benefits. You just have to be able to understand that it's not just about cost and and what it can do. I find context being the most important thing for salespeople. So what really bugs me is when they'll go, yeah, 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 we've got this other firm and they did this, this, and this, and it gave them four million pound in cost savings. I'm like, that's got nothing to do with my business. I'm not interested in that. What can you do for me? Because if that's all they've got to offer salespeople, then then I could just I could find that stuff out myself, right? It's how did they do that? What similarities to if you want a case study, that's fine, but you've got to make it, you've got to put it in context to my business. So they spent less on this, they had a better margin on this, this enabled more time for this. And it's not what the product does, it's what it enables the business to do with the product. So that's that's really important. And uncontextual selling is probably one of my one of my biggest, biggest bugbears, actually. Okay, that's really interesting. Because, uh, again, I'm with you 100%. Most people, when they push product, don't recognize the wider context. Um, So to set the scene, if I spend a pound here, then I cannot spend it there. And so I'm constantly making trade-offs as a CXO. And then I have to think about the consequences of my decision, not just immediately, but what are the knock-on, the ripple effect implications? And so a seller who cannot see that broader context, as Andy said, isn't really a seller. They An empty suit with commission breath, as Larry Levine would describe them. And they, they bring no value. When I'm selling, I always want to understand if they make an investment in whatever it is that I'm offering, what are the knock-on implications? How quickly does it become self-funding? How does it create space so that other resources are freed up? How does it generate the capital that the business needs in order to make other critical strategic investments? Because if by investing in a piece of sales AI, I'm able to free up 90% of the salespeople's time that is currently wasted on ineffective prospecting to non-prospects, then they can spend more time on genuine opportunities, that's increasing the probability of closing, which then generates cash for the business. And that can then fund uh, the CEO's other pet projects. But if I don't know what those, those pet projects are that have had to be put on the back burner, then I can't relate it in terms of the context of, uh, well, 
which means that if you buy this, then this, this, and this is possible. So salespeople really need to get, they need to think as the CEO. They don't need to think about the CEO. Yeah, so when I, when I transitioned from being a salesperson or being a revenue generator or revenue driver to being a CEO, the addition to my tasks is risk. So it's management of risk. So I think as a salesperson, I would look at, even if you, you, can, be a, you can be a commercial salesperson and look at what if it does work. So what will happen if your product works? So you can explain to the, the, the customer, these are the likely outcomes of your, of your product working, and it might be saving money, and you might be able to go into innumerable depth on that and be very commercially astute about that. But that's a business development way of looking at a purchase or an investment. The CEO then looks at risk. So the CEO look, looks at what if it doesn't work. So you're looking at both sides of that. And oftentimes, salespeople struggle to sell to CXOs that are of a defensive mindset. So usually financial people or people that have come up through the CFO route and into a CEO role tend to err on the side of caution. And they're, they're more strongly associated, what if it doesn't work? than the what if it does work? A balanced CEO looks at both of those sides. If the salesperson can only sell one to me, then you're letting me make the decision on the what if it doesn't work. And I think the salesperson's got the opportunity to mitigate the what if it doesn't work. So that's just as important as what if it does work. So what's stopping this from failing? That's a rarely traveled path for salespeople. Very rarely do I get a salesperson that will say, look, here's some mitigation if it doesn't work, right? So oftentimes that gets bumped into negotiation at the end of the process. And if a salesperson doesn't come to me with that, I will hold that back and I'll use that to get money off the money off the purchase. So if they're not already mitigating for me, then I'll be like, at the last minute, I'll be I'll introduce the risk. I'll be like, yeah, but the, we've got to overcome this risk and this risk and this risk. So how about I pay for 10% up front and the next 20% on this deliverable and the next 20% on this deliverable? As a salesperson, you're still making a sale. You might make it at the same price, but it's not as valuable for your business. So you've got to go in and not just make the sale, but you want to make the sale at its most effective. So, but if you can add the value for me, I'll pay for that, right? So if you can help me mitigate the risk, if you can help me understand why this is unlikely not to work rather than why this is likely to work, which are the opposite sides of the same coin. But if you can help me see both sides of that, then I'll happily pay for the value because I don't see any risk in pumping the money in up front. So a lot of people go to that default payments of, I made a mistake actually in selling a business one time. I, I, the first business I sold, I sold at the asking price, but I allowed the, I allowed the buyer to, to pay me in installments and he made a mess of running the business and I ended up helping him run the business to, to make sure that I got paid the installments and he didn't pay the final £2,000 installment that he should have paid because he'd run the business into the ground. It was a good business. He just didn't run it very well. So I, I kind of lost out on that. And I had to wait every month for my money. It was not, um, wasn't an optimal situation. If I'd sold that better to him and made him feel less worried about the potential failure for it, then it, uh, he would have probably just given me all the money up front. Because he had the cash. He just wanted to hold it back. I was very naive at that time. We've all been there, I think. <laughs> um, 
again, I think you've touched on something really important here, which is that there are three things that every CEO is trying to manage, time, money, and risk. And the reality is certainty. If you can bring certainty to the party, that is of real value. And that's something that will prevent you being stiffed on fees later on, as Andy's touched on, which is that people are an investment. Uh, They're not a cost. And if you treat them as a cost, they will behave as a cost. But if you treat them as an investment, and God knows, we've all made bad investments. So sometimes you make the wrong hire uh, or you have the wrong person in a role for which they're not suited. But you're trying to manage those three big pillars of time, money, and risk. And if you can help them recover time, and there is a time, uh, sorry, there's a, a cash value to time. If you can drive efficiency, if you can improve productivity, and you can demonstrate that in their context, then that is a mitigating factor when it comes to the price. If you can help them save money, make money, help them to create more certainty. On talking about your shiny widget, none of that ever gets discussed. And if you are not talking about and you don't understand the risks that they are trying to mitigate, it's very easy for your uh, proposition to get bumped to the next buying uh, cycle. So how do you prioritize which purchases you're going to make on the basis of those constraints of time, money, and resource? That's a very good question. And probably not one that we've got long enough to to go into in any depth. How so? How do we prioritize? I think there's a bit of it. Prioritization comes from understanding the the purpose, the business's purpose, and the strategy and the objectives that you're trying to achieve. And and then that becomes that becomes a priority if they are subsets of urgency. So if they're not in that in that urgent and time sensitive to do those things, then you'll tend to buy from, or you'll tend to make the purchases that are the easiest to to transact, very honestly. And I think if it's difficult, I'll just generally leave it. And so if you've got more than one supplier battling for your attention, I'll go with the supplier that, that can make my life easiest, not necessarily the best product, definitely not the cheapest product, but the, the most affordable product. A lot of it is about support. Um, so if you're buying things or investing in things, it, it's how much time is this going to drain away from me? And the exponential factor of that is if this doesn't work that very well, how much time is it going to drain away from me to fix it? So I think if you plug in something in that changes something else fundamentally, you, you've got to have a, a contingency. If a seller can help you understand what the contingency is if things don't work. Let's say, so we've invested CRM system in the last 18 months. And one of the key things that that we looked at in that was that we were offered support. So if it doesn't work for any reason, then they will send in people to fix it. Now, there's a certain amount of free fixing that goes on, and then there's a certain amount of stuff that we that we have to pay for, service contract kind of thing. But that is much more palatable than the alternative of the system not working, which would be downtime and total loss of control of what's going on in the business, which we just can't afford. We're a very moment-to-moment business, and we need to be able to see what's going on. Therefore, live system is really important. But if it's not live then the minimizing the downtime of the system is absolutely vital. And 
without that level of support, the product can be as amazing as it, as you like, but it's not viable for us because we're, we're downside protecting because you have offline on you, you go offline on your system and, and that's, that's uh, normal. It, it, that happens. So you've kind of that risk mitigation. So I think that's kind of a bit broader answer than, than, than maybe we were, we were going for that, but uh, important. Well, I'll give you a great example of this. Back in the 1990s when I was in recruitment, I was working with a recruitment company and the CEO wouldn't invest in a new server. It took each of his 16, 20 grand server would have been paid for in under four days. And the problem was that the focus was on cash instead of the outcome because the nature of that particular recruitment business was very, very transactional. And uh, I think one of is that inexperienced CEOs CEOs that come from a finance background are often very focused about the cost of everything instead of the value that it brings. Very often, uh, and CEOs who get run ragged suffer from this as well, they're always asking why, which is a fabulous question, how, also a fabulous If you get smart and you learn to ask, who can do this job? Who can solve this problem? And you can uh, set your ego aside because very often what we see with um, a, a lot of leaders and managers, or no one can do it as well as I can. And that's very diminishing to their people because it demonstrates they don't trust them. But as you've grown older and wiser, how has asking the question of who helped you? The question of who is essentially delegation. So I think you you kind of... So, or the ne- the next stage of once you've answered that question is delegation. How has delegation helped me? It's allowed me to go from working seventy hour weeks in in this business when I first took over to probably doing five hours of of what you might call day to day work. The rest of it is either firefighting or projects. That's where I sit as a a CEO. I'm from a from a kind of go forward background, so I've come up through the business development and sales route. The balance of the board. So we've got a chairman who's focused on compliance. We've got a finance director who is who who looks after the beans and counts that and looks at the looks at the analysis on that. So I've let go of my ego, if you want to call it that, or I've let go of the need to control everything and and allowed the other people in the boardroom to to do the things that they're good at, which has given me more time to focus on what I'm good at. So I enjoy the job more. I get more out of the role. The business gets more benefit from that. Everyone's probably enjoys being around me a lot more. And therefore, we are able to to meet our purpose of being a a very people-focused organization. Further downstream, empowering sales leaders and empowering managers further down the line what that's done is allowed me to stay out of the day-to-day, which means that I can look more objectively from a strategic point of view. And then the discussion is about how does the tactics match the strategy. So I've become a lot more strategic, had a lot more time to think about making the right moves and steering the ship rather than doing the stuff. And that's allowed us to grow quite quickly, but it's also allowed us to grow quite quickly without driving through a minefield. Right, Because if you just put all your focus on sales, I've been in organizations where they go, right, let's sell first and we'll worry about stuff later. And that just gets you in problems. You, you go two steps forward, one step back. Whereas if you've got a good strategy, then you're driving 
you're driving smooth and steady growth and you've got an eye on the horizon, we've still managed to grow through the pandemic. And that's meant even with moving to remote working and all of that stuff, I would not have been in a position to do that 18 months ago, 24 months ago in this business because I wouldn't have had the bandwidth to cope with it. So as a CEO, leaving some bandwidth to do some stuff is a really important thing. If your diaries do packed, then that's the time when you need to start delegating or asking who can do that stuff. When you get good at doing that, you ask that of every single task that comes your way. You're like, who can do this? And then life just becomes a lot easier and you end up being able to focus your skills where you are best. And that's what every business needs of every every employee, really, not just the CEO. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a fabulous insight. So ha- have you ever worked with a salesperson who absolutely blew your stocks off because they were so good at what they did? And what was it that they did that was different to every other salesperson you've dealt with? The answer is yes. <laughs> so we've got somewhere to go with the question. I think the the real good, the, the differentiator for me with salespeople has always been that the best salespeople are the ones that don't act like your stereotypical salesperson. So you almost don't recognize them as being a salesperson, even when you know that they are revenue generator, they are doing they're doing the job. They are so heavily aligned with what the customer needs and providing value for the customer that they they almost feel like a a part of that person's business so a great salesperson integrates them themselves into the client's organization at whatever level for whatever period of time and it doesn't need to be you know it doesn't need to be huge but great salespeople think every single thing they do is about what's in it for the customer how does this benefit the customer and what does it meet their needs? So do I understand their needs and do I meet their needs? Nothing that a good salesperson does should be about themselves. If you then can do that and that aligns with your product and the way that you sell that, then you make a sale. If you don't, if it doesn't and the needs of the customer are not matched by your your product, then you just have a good experience and you you don't make the sale or you don't make the purchase. Some of the best salespeople I've dealt with have been the ones that couldn't sell to me or chose not to sell to me because they didn't think what they were offering was right for my organization. I respect that hugely and I'm more likely to recommend that person to somebody else. So it's just got to always be about customer focus how can I serve? How can I add value to the customer? How can I give them some insights that they don't already see? So that's a powerful thing. If you can help a customer see something that they've not seen about their own business, then then that's then that's you know that's winning huge points and that elevates into the top couple of percentile of salespeople. But those insights are there because you are able to look from outside in and you can often see a different picture to. To, to what the organization sees. And that's super valuable. So to summarize, the salesperson creates the conditions for buyer safety. Yeah. The buyer always knows that the only thing that is on the salesperson's mind, they focus on the outcome, being able to understand the context in which the buyer is operating. 
and uh, is focused on the right solution, even if it's not theirs. They ask questions not to gather information, not for understanding, but to deliver insight uh, as a neutral third party who has no attachment. They're also not attached to the outcome. Um, the only outcome that they care about is the customer's outcome, not theirs, because they see their reward as coming from helping enough other people achieve their objectives. And the byproduct is they make their quota. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. I think focusing on letting go of the outcome is a very difficult thing in sales, is a difficult thing in life in general, but it makes life easier if you are not if you're not obsessed about what the outcome is, you have to work towards a desired outcome. But if things don't work out that way, you have to accept where what the outcome is. And it makes it makes the whole journey a lot, a lot more pleasant. And letting go of the outcome of, of your desire to sell is a very, very strong character trait in salespeople. So th- this also then points to a need for being rigorously authentic. You always tell the truth. Um, you know, you can forgive a lie, but you can never forget it. And where a customer or prospect is going to do themselves harm, you need to be ready to enter into constructive conflict and challenge them if they are overstepping a boundary. You need to earn trust. Trust is hard-earned and easily lost. You've got to constantly be relevant. So that means that you have to work with them as their partner. You have to get down and dirty in the trenches. You have to be ready to walk away if it's not a win for both sides. You need to be focused on the customer's success. And then you just become another salesperson of the stereotypical type. Fair? Yeah, I like all of that. I think there's a there's a really important point here because I've talked a lot about from the perception of a CEO and, and being sold to I think it's important that salespeople remember that they need to set their own boundaries so they can they take an equality in the relationship and they are the specialist and they are they need to be able to have that conversation with the client so they need to be truthful and very vulnerable but they also need to be strong and powerful where necessary to to guide the conversation the right way so being customer focused doesn't mean being passive or it doesn't mean being uh, subservient in the process equality is very important for me as a seller and as a buyer and i think if you see the seller as a subject matter expert that can give you some powerful insights and guide you, sometimes with difficult conversations, telling you what you need to do for the, for the best of your organization, then that's a very powerful thing for a seller to be able to do. But be careful that you, you've got to be very careful that you do that in the right way and you pick the right time to do that. But an equality of relationship is very important. I think equal business stature as a, a right of a salesperson is really important. And too many salespeople don't understand that they have rights as a seller. And so because they don't know they have them, when they're ridden roughshod over, they just accept it and they're passive. People come to us as salespeople for leadership and a safe pair of hands. They don't come to us because they're looking for someone to bully. Now, one final thing that I'd like to talk about is the relationship between the CEO and procurement or purchase 
interesting because I think certainly since COVID has uh, struck, purchasing at a strategic level has become far more important. But there's also been a massive rise in the tactical uh, squeeze the suppliers down on cost. What advice would you give to a CEO who has a tactical purchasing team in terms of the impact that will have on the commitment of suppliers to support you when times are tough? That's a really interesting point and, and very topical right now. I think tactics are okay, but they have to align with the strategy. So tactics are a product of the strategy. And if they are misaligned, then you break relationships. So saving a few pennies now might be the only way a company can survive. And therefore, tactically driving down your supplier costs is important and probably necessary for a lot of companies because you can't just take your foot off the gas because you're going under if you don't save some money. So it's about how you get that that reaction or how you get that result that matters. So even if you have to squeeze your suppliers, you've got to strike a deal in that that is is beneficial to both parties. So you've got to find so you you're asking for something, a reduction in price. You've got to then go back to them with something which is of equal value or at least of some value. Whether that's a future stated thing or whether that's something right now, that's contextually important and you need to find that out. So something which is current value, you could ask for a reduction in price and offer a bigger percentage of the book. So if you get to grain supplier, five grain suppliers for your grain business or for your bread business, then you can say to your supplier, look, I need you to supply me a little bit more cheaply, but we'll only use three suppliers. So your volume is going to go up. So you can offer an immediate thing or you can future state it. If you don't have any wriggle room whatsoever, you can do that with goodwill or you can do that with future promises or future contracts and say, look, we will... We need you to reduce your price, but we'll guarantee that we're going to buy from you for the next five years. So, and that's the only way we can stay in business. So it's a reverse sell almost. Uh, you know, buying is just selling from the other the other way around. So, and a good a good sale or a good purchase is a good deal. If you want to put a ring around both of those things, a good deal is where both sides feel like they've that they've they've won on that. So don't fall foul of the pressure of the immediate need always think about what's the does what's the strategy and then use the tactics to fit the strategy so if the strategy is we care about our suppliers then you need to you need to find a, a tactical solution for that if your strategy is we don't give a shit about our suppliers and we can find loads of others squeeze them all you like i mean that's kind of like you don't want the relationship it, it doesn't matter so What's of value and the val- the longer term value of losing that relationship? How important is that? Because if you squeeze people, they'll just resent it. So you've got to, if you're going to squeeze them, you've got to give them something, something back. That, that's how you end up as BHS. Well, yeah, exactly. And and it becomes a re- whether it's selling on price or whether it's buying on price, that just becomes a race to the bottom. And there's yeah. plenty of. Plenty of commoditized industries that have that have gone down that that route and not found a value based solution. Sales history is littered with them. <laughs> technologies over technologies superseded things, and people have just gone on price. And that's it's neither a good way to buy nor sell. And price really is is a is a very small part of the consideration either way. So 
And we've come to time. Tell me this, what are you struggling with? What am I struggling with? That's a, that's a very good question. The thing I'm struggling with is being patient at the moment. Um, there's lots of opportunities out there. Volatility tends to create that. Uh, and I think it's important for me and my businesses to stay true to my values of doing things that I love doing and that I'm really passionate about. There are lots of opportunities to make money or lots of opportunities to influence or do good. I need to pick the ones that that, that fit with my values and make sure that I am strategically as well as tactically aligned with what I'm doing. So that's probably my my biggest struggle. That takes up quite a lot of my time at the moment. So sifting through what I want to do just because I could doesn't mean I have to. So well, what we say no to is often more important than what we say yes to. Yeah, absolutely. Because space is important. You want to fill the space that you've got. Your time and space is limited. Whatever you do, um, life's short, and it's important that we that we focus on the things that that we either enjoy doing or are passionate about, or, or that serve our purpose at that time. I'm very fortunate that I'm in a position where I can choose passion-based projects. I've worked very hard to get there. The important thing for me is not to not to dive into something just because I just because I can go and do that. It needs to align properly. Excellent. Okay, you've got a golden ticket. You can go and whisper in Andy's ear as the 23-year-old idiot he undoubtedly was. What choice bit of advice would you have given him, uh, would you give him, that you know he'd have probably ignored? Uh, apart from being more patient, which, <laughs> which, I'm, which I'm still ignoring 20 years, 23 <laughs> years later, I think there's a couple of things. The, the younger version of me was very idealistic, uh, and I think ideology's got a place in business, but you can't be an ideologue. So you, you've got to be, you've got to match ideology with pragmatism and also realize that other people can do things for you just as well as you can do them for yourself. And when you realize that, then you're set for exponential growth because you just find the people that are best at doing things. So at 20, at my first business, I did everything. I learned everything. I learned how to do accounting. I learned how to do marketing. I learned how to do a mail merge. I learned how to print on a dot matrix printer. All stuff that stood me in good stead over time. But but as a leader, I got heavily involved in things that, that I, di- I didn't need to get involved in. And passing those tasks or those projects or things on to people that are better served to do them, I've got better skills and more interest in doing those things has just allowed me to focus on what I'm good at, what I enjoy and really living a fulfilled life. And and that's kind of a lot of people get to CEO level and are not fulfilled. And, And that's something which I am passionate about is living a fulfilled life. So hence remaining patient when opportunities come around. So I think that's what I'd say to myself. Excellent advice. Um, so tell me this, what are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think um, uh, other people should pay heed to? So um, cool. I read a lot. So I think, um, you know, I think it's an important thing. I spent, when I finished university, I kind of decided that I'd done with learning. I didn't need to learn anything else. And uh, that was the education system for you. Um, in the last 10 years, I've really doubled down on learning uh, and um, reading. So I'm reading lots of spiritual things that are helping me understand purpose and, and, and bigger picture things. From a business perspective, um, I love Tim Ferriss' stuff. So anything that Tim Ferriss is doing, I'm interested in it. Um, his four-hour work week book was 
transformational for me, uh, and that was that speaks to giving away a lot of responsibility to other people um, because you don't need to do it all. So that's a big that's a big influence. Um, Simon Sinek is a probably another big influence on on me at the moment. Um, again, around aligning purpose with. Um, with business so why are we in business why do we manage and why do we lead in the style that we do what's the organization focusing on are we looking at the right things because i have a principle which i call integrated life which is what i'm working towards i'm working on myself and there are a variety of different influences that are driving towards that but fulfillment and purpose really are that the goals and i'll read i'll read or listen to anything that, that drives towards that have you read uh, uh, um The Infinite Game? Yeah, I think that that is that's a kind of ethereal version of Grant Cardone's 10x stuff. So if you're very practically sales-minded, read Grant Cardone's stuff, and you're he's a bit more tub thumping. Um, Simon Sinek's Infinite Game is is much more about um, achieving that kind of growth in a in a congruent way. Not that Grant Cardone stuff's incongruent. It's just two different ways to look at to look at the same thing, which is exponentially um, raising your game and, and, and delivering results, whatever those results are, whether that's money or whether that's fulfillment or satisfaction or happiness or whatever that is. Understanding what drives you and then working towards that. There's lots of great influences out there. Um, there's definitely a movement of combining work with other aspects of our life which i'm i'm super passionate about excellent how can people get hold of you um so i am active again on social media after spending if you want the a couple of years <laughs> off um because i was working out what i wanted to say and how to say it and where to say it so I've got uh, oneparallel.com, so number one, and then parallel.com is my um, consultancy business. The MSM Healthcare website, if, you, if you're interested in, in recruitment or being a salesperson or um, being a carer, um, and my personal, um, personal brand site, which is just launching, is andrewshaw.blog, um, which I've set up so that I can um, have some part of the conversation about things which are not necessarily aligned to my uh, to, to my professional brand, a bit more of my voice about things which are a wide variety of topics that I'm, uh, that I'm passionate about. Excellent. Andy Shaw, thank you. This has been incredibly insightful. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you you found this useful, insightful, email me at marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. And uh, if you own or run a uh, technology company, typically in the 10 to 50 million range, and your goal is to grow your business at super fast rates without the wheel and wings coming off and without bees and clients who stick with you year after year, let's schedule time for a brief conversation. Uh, email me or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye. Excellent advice. Tell me this, what are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should pay heed to? So 
Cool. I read a lot. So I think, um, you know, I think it's an important thing. When I finished university, I kind of decided that I'd done with learning. I didn't need to learn anything else. And uh, that was the education system for you. In the last 10 years, I've really doubled down on learning uh, and reading. So I'm reading lots of spiritual things that are helping me understand purpose and, and, and bigger picture things. From a business perspective, I love Tim Ferriss's stuff. So anything that Tim Ferriss is doing, I'm interested in it. His four-hour work week book was transformational for me. That speaks to giving away a lot of responsibility to other people um, because you don't need to do it all. So that's a big that's a big influence. Simon Sinek is a, probably another big influence on me at the moment. Again, around aligning purpose with business. So why are we in business? Why do we manage and why do we lead in the style that we do? What's the organization focusing on? Are we looking at the right things? Because I have a principle which I call integrated life, which is what I'm working towards and working on myself. And there are a variety of different influences that are driving towards that. But fulfillment and purpose really are that the goals. And I'll read, I'll read or listen to anything that, that drives towards that. Have you read uh, uh, um The Infinite Game? Yeah, I think that that's a kind of ethereal version of Grant Cardone's 10x stuff. So if you're very practically sales-minded, read Grant Cardone's stuff and you're, uh, he's a bit more tub-thumping. Simon Sinek's Infinite Game is is much more about achieving that kind of growth in a in a congruent way. Not that Grant Cardone's stuff's incongruent, it's just two different ways to look at to look at the same thing, which is exponentially raising your game and, and, and delivering results, whatever those results are, whether that's money or whether that's fulfillment or satisfaction or happiness or whatever that is, understanding what drives you and then working towards that. There's lots of great influences out there. There's definitely a movement of combining work with other aspects of our life, which I'm, I'm super passionate about. Excellent. How can people get hold of you? I am active again on social media after spending if you a, couple want year, a couple of years <laughs> off because I was working out what I wanted to say and how to say it and where to say it. So I've got oneparallel.com. So number one and then parallel.com is my consultancy business. The MSM Healthcare website, if, you, if you're interested in, in recruitment or being a salesperson or being a carer, and my personal personal brand site, which is just launching, is andrewshaw.blog, which I've set up so that I can have some part of the conversation about things which are not necessarily aligned to my professional brand, a bit more of my voice about things which are a wide variety of topics that I'm, uh, that I'm passionate about. Excellent. Andy Shaw, thank you. This has been incredibly insightful. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, email me at marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. And if you own or run a technology company, typically in the 10 to 50 million range, and your goal is to grow your business at super fast rates without the wheels and wings coming off and without bees and clients who stick with you year after year, let's schedule time for a brief conversation. Email me or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.